Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and today's story is going to make you feel something, for sure. This story is incredible. It has shaken me to my core, and I'm certain that it will make all of you guys out there feel similarly because all of us have had a childhood. I'm sure. I mean, all of us have gotten to adulthood. So we made it through childhood. We made it through our teens, a lot of us. And so we know what it feels like to be at that young age and feel so confused about the world. And yet the story I'll be sharing today about Joanne Bland, a lot of her story takes place when she was under the age of 13. And she did so many things before she even reached teenagerdom and was able to accomplish so much and fight fear and be so brave All of these things that I could not imagine for myself under the age of 13. So I'm so excited to share her story today. I worked on it alongside my friend Kayla Stokes, who you guys met last week. She has her own podcast called Bias Bender, where she shares stories of black women from history, past, present, and relates it to the future. She does an incredible job weaving together her stories, and so I'm honored to work with her again today on this one. So be sure to stay tuned until the very end to hear from her, because she will give us a little reflection of what Joanne story means to her as well as some other parting remarks so definitely stay tuned till the end but in the meantime I'm going to share with you guys the story of Joanne Bland. Joanne is an activist who proved that you were never too young to make your voice heard. She is still active in the fight for civil rights most specifically voting rights today and on the podcast we'll be telling her story along with talking about children and young adults roles in seeking justice and mustering up bravery to get what they deserve but also how this can be problematic and rob black children of their youth. This and more on today's episode of Thick and Thin. So our story begins in 1950s Alabama. And for context, Alabama was the epicenter of many, many pivotal key events in the American civil rights movement. It was here in Alabama that Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks refused to give up their bus seats. And this led to the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, which then led to the formation of freedom rider groups which were made up of both black and white civil rights activists protesting segregated bus terminals, not to mention peaceful protests led by Reverend Martin Luther King, a Birmingham church fire that killed four young black girls carried out by a white supremacist group, and the march from Selma to Montgomery put pressure on the government to approve the Civil Rights Act in 1965. This is 1950s and 1960s Alabama in a super quick glance. It was here and at this time that light was slowly starting to be shed on the reality of racial injustice in the United States. Alabama ignited this fire. The brave men and women here fought to challenge the racially unjust norms of the time. And one of these brave men and women was born on July 29, 1952 in Selma, Alabama. This is the story of Joanne Bland. So to take things back in time a bit to when Joanne was young, Her mother passed away when she was just three years old, so her grandmother and her father raised her and her two older sisters. They grew up poor and often didn't have the money for new clothes. But luckily, Joanne had relatives in the North that would send boxes of hand-me-downs, shoes, and other things to help out the family a few times a year. She distinctly remembers one of the boxes that came during Easter time when she was young. Inside the box was a blue dress, and it was, quote, the most beautiful dress I'd ever seen in my entire life, Joanne said. She ran upstairs to put the dress on and instantly felt like a princess. She twirled around the house and felt so happy, but she soon realized that none of the shoes in the box would fit her larger feet. 
Her grandmother took one look at her, though, in that blue dress and said, I'm going to take you into town and buy you a new pair of shoes. Joanne was ecstatic. It was totally out of the ordinary to get new clothes or shoes. New anything was very abnormal for her, so she was so excited. And what happens next will give you an idea of just how aggressive segregation laws were in the American South. Black men, women, and children weren't allowed to try on shoes or clothing in shops that white people could also shop. So when Joanne's grandmother took her to buy the pair of shoes to match the blue dress, which was such a rare treat, like we said, she came prepared with a piece of string cut to the exact length of Joanne's foot. That way the salespeople would know her size without having to try anything on. I was passing by a window and I saw my shoes, Joanne later said. You know when those are your shoes, you see it. She just knew. And Joanne was so excited about the shoes in the window that before her grandmother could stop her, she ran inside the store and tried them on. She saw other people in the store trying on shoes right off the shelf, so certainly she could too, right? Unfortunately, the shoes ended up being too big, so she couldn't wear them with her new dress. And when she put them back on the shelf, like she found them, she hadn't realized she'd done anything wrong at all. After all, a bunch of white children were trying on shoes right off the shelf right next to her. A white sales clerk told Joanne and her grandmother in a super nasty voice along with racial slurs that because Joanne had put her foot in the shoe, nobody's going to buy these shoes. You have to pay for them, even though they were too big. And so Joanne's grandmother was forced to buy the shoes, and because that's all that they could afford, Joanne left the shop without shoes that fit her that day. She left in tears, but at the time, that was the law, despite how royally unfair it was. As a child, Joanne also often passed by a drugstore in town. She would see the white children through the window sitting at the counter, enjoying their drinks and snacks in the store, and she'd ask her grandmother why she couldn't sit at the counter too. They were all the same age as her after all. This was when Joanne started to understand segregation and Jim Crow laws at an extremely young age. It's the law, her grandmother told Joanne. One day and one day soon, it's going to change. You're better than they are and you will always be better than they are. Her grandmother's words went on to inspire Joanne to take part in the civil rights movement at a super young age, becoming the youngest person to have been jailed during any civil rights demonstration. In reality, growing up in the South as a black child in this time period almost immediately just involved Joanne in the civil rights movement. She was pulled in right away. It seems as though the fate of her situation was to be in the thick of the struggle for her rights and the rights of those closest to her. She was exposed to inequality and injustice from a super young age, and she knew it wasn't right. She saw her family affected in the most intimate and public ways, and to her, getting involved wasn't really a choice at all. So it's no wonder that even at the ripe old age of eight years old, Joanne attended her first Freedom and Voters' Rights meeting. It was 1961, and organizing was the name of the game. And on top of that, Selma, Alabama, Joanne's hometown, was a key center for grassroots organization. Joanne was first introduced into the world of organization through her grandmother, who was an active supporter of the civil rights movement. But soon after, Joanne found herself supporting and fighting for the movement in her own right. Joanne joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or the SNCC, and by the time she was just 11 years old, she was a seasoned participant in protesting and marching on behalf of civil rights in Selma. Another way to look at her success as a disruptive voice is to look at the amount of times she was jailed as a child. At 11 years old, she had already been jailed 13 times for her participation in various protests. Can you imagine being that bold at such a young age? I only knew the movement. Joanne later said, I thought every child in America had the same life I did. 
played, had fun, went to jail. At 13, Joanne became one of seven students to integrate the all-white A.G. Paris High School in Selma, Alabama. The white teachers were rude to her and the other black students, Joanne remembered. The other students hit her unprovoked, but if Joanne was to fight back, she was the one that would get in trouble. All the while, though, Joanne was fighting for voting rights in the best way she knew how. She was taught by her peers and elders that voting was a key means towards real freedom. Not all black people had the luxury of being able to use their voices in the democratic system at the time, and to be honest, even when black people were able to vote legally, they were blocked from voting because of the situations in which they were forced to try and participate in the voting system. So that was the main motivator for Joanne to get out onto the streets. Even at such a young age, she knew how important it was for people who looked like her to be able to fully participate in the world around her. The most recognizable marches that she participated in were the Selma to Montgomery marches. Like the name suggests, these marches started in her hometown of Selma, and their goal was to end up in Alabama's state capital, Montgomery. The overarching goal was to raise awareness and demonstrate on behalf of voting rights for black Southerners. While the groups that organized these protests would consider themselves nonviolent activists, the people on the other side of things did not stick to nonviolent resistance. Police officers unleashed their fury on these unarmed protesters in a way that has become all too American, unfortunately. One day of these marches became known as Bloody Sunday because of the violence instigated by state and local troopers. On Bloody Sunday in 1965, 13-year-old Joanne was there. At one point, the group reached a bridge and she didn't want to go on any further. She'd witnessed so much violence during this dark day and it was really starting to weigh on her. I tried to go back, she said. Whatever cost this freedom was, it was too much for me. But her two older sisters, who were both in their early teens at the time, convinced her to keep going. I remember one of them saying, come on, they're not going to beat Dr. King. I went, but I was scared. While figures who went on to have huge notoriety, such as Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, and Stokely Carmichael, They were there during this incredible, historic moment, but there were also so many other young people fighting to make a difference. Joanne Bland and her sister Linda were among the crowds of what turned into absolute mayhem. Joanne recounts those days by saying, Before we could turn to run, they'd come in from the sides, the back, and the front. There was nowhere to go. They were just beating people. You couldn't outrun the cops on horses. I remember seeing this horse and this lady. I don't know if he hit her and she fell, but I can hear the sound that her head made when it hit the pavement. Sickening. At one of these protests, Joanne's older sister, Linda, saw people putting Joanne into the back of a white car, and she thought instantly that her sister had died. But when Linda got to the car, she soon realized that Joanne had just fainted. And when she woke up, she could feel her sister's blood dripping on her face from being hit in the head so many times. Hearing that a child had to witness these gruesome things is super difficult to take in. Honestly, hearing that anyone, regardless of age, witnessed and survived this kind of violence is tough, but this was the reality at the time. And when it comes to nonviolent protesting being confronted with violence, this reality hasn't really changed all that much. Either way, this is the history of how Joanne was introduced into the civil rights movement and what it means to stand up for your beliefs in this country. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A little over 400 miles away from where a young Joanne Bland was participating in movements in Alabama, there were children with a very similar spirit and bravery doing the same. The landmark 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Brown v. Board of Education, set in motion the racial integration of the nation's schools, but it was met with quite a lot of aggressive opposition from white townspeople in all of these states. Little Rock High School in Arkansas became one of the first to begin a slow integration, and nine black students were enrolled in the formerly all-white school. They were chosen on the basis that they had the bravery to withstand the torment that they'd likely experience inside and outside of the school's walls. Just a few days before the school opened, though, and the kids were set to go, something frustrating happened. Arkansas governor of the time, Orville Faubus, ordered the National Guard to prevent black students from entering the state schools, claiming it was, quote, for their own protection. But it was to no avail. The next day, federal court judge Richard Davies issued a counter-ruling that desegregation would proceed. It was the morning of September 4th that the nine students, called the Little Rock Nine, attempted to enter the school. But as they tried, a crowd of angry white students and adults and the National Guard were there to meet them with racial slurs, screaming and spitting. Despite the federal judge's ruling, the Guard prevented the students from entering the school. But news of this soon reached President Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower tried to persuade the governor not to defy the court's ruling, and on September 20th, just two weeks after the initial attempt, Judge Davies ordered the National Guard removed from the school, and the Little Rock Police Department took over to maintain order instead. And this didn't quite work as planned, because the police attempted to escort the students to school, but were met by an angry mob of thousands of white protesters when they tried. Little Rock Mayor Woodrow Wilson Mann stepped in, though, and asked President Eisenhower to send federal troops to enforce integration. So on September 24th, something finally happened. President Eisenhower ordered the 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock and federalized the entire 10,000 members of the Arkansas National Guard, taking authority away from the governor. And the next day, the Army troops escorted the students to their first day of high school. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows from there. The nine black students were tormented by not only fellow students, but adults too. Their time inside of those high school walls proved to be more traumatic and more stressful than any of us can even remotely say about our unfortunate high school experiences today. One of the students, Melba Patillo, had acid thrown in her face, and another, Gloria Ray, was thrown down a flight of stairs just because of the color of their skin. Each member of the Little Rock Nine went on to graduate from high school, regardless of the trauma they faced. Despite being in their teens, these young adults made waves in the civil rights movement, along with others who rallied for equal education and other rights, too. Just to name a few, the Greensboro Four and Ruby Bridges, who at just six years old walked into a formerly all-white school completely on her own, enduring the same racist remarks, spitting, and torture at six years old. You might be thinking to yourself, why were children and teenagers involved in the struggle for civil rights? Wouldn't that be something left for adults who are ready to grapple with those issues? Well, in an ideal world, children wouldn't have to feel like they were being pulled into these fights. And of course, in a really ideal world, there wouldn't even be these struggles to begin with. But the reality is that there's a long history of the adultification of Black children. A lot of Black children in this country have not been afforded the luxury of a prolonged innocent childhood. 
There are plenty of reasons for that, but we can kind of break it down into two categories. The first main category that contributes towards the adultification of Black children is situational systemic responsibilities. Basically, Black children are often put in situations that demand them to step up to the plate in an adult way. We see this in Joanne's story when she lost a parent at a young age because of the systemic racism within the medical care system. This story is unfortunately not unique in that many children have to take on a parental role for themselves and their siblings because the systems that have abused their own adult parents. The second major factor that we can look to as part of the adultification of black children is the societal prejudices placed on the children themselves. The reality for a lot of black children in this country is that our society sees them as being adults way before they are able to function as such. Black children are way more likely to be portrayed as being older than they are as a way to make sure they're punished for any missteps they might take. When we think of a white child who is 16 years old, for the most part, the media and society like to portray any mistakes they make as being a product of growing up and learning how to behave. Meanwhile, a black child of the same age should have known better and is already on the wrong path. That difference is so dangerous for black children because they're often vilified and expected to be on their best behavior. And if they fail to act like perfect adults, they're more likely to be punished as if they already were adults. Basically, adultification is a type of stereotype and bias that chips away at black children's ability to just be kids. Adultification can be used as a weapon against children who really should just be able to grow up at their own pace. So when we ask ourselves, why were children involved in these often dangerous marches and demonstrations, we can really look at the fact that the world around them didn't treat them like children, so they didn't act like kids. They acted like adults in search of justice and peace. Some days I wake up, I look at the news, and I feel like I'm paralyzed in the 60s, Joanne told the Lansing State Journal. Even today at the age of 68, Joanne knows there's still work to do to gain true racial equality. If you thought a figure like Joanne would be able to stop or slow down, you'd be wrong. She continues to work on behalf of civil rights to this day. One of her main efforts is Journeys for the Soul. This touring agency serves as a gateway into the world that she grew up in. Joanne operates this company that gives people the opportunity to explore Selma through the eyes of tour guides who were there on the ground during the heat of the civil rights movement in Alabama. The goal of the tours are to show people the importance of using their voice and power to face injustice. Joanne knows that she is living history and she uses her knowledge to help make the world a better place. She says it best through, quote, I'm brutally honest all the time. My idea is to change hearts. I try to do that with my tours. I truly believe it's every generation's responsibility to make the world a better place than they found it. She also said movements for social change are like jigsaw puzzles. Everyone's a piece. If your piece is missing, the picture is not complete. Why? Because you're the most important piece. To help Joanne in her continued fight against racism and injustice, go to her website, IamJoanneBland.com. The tab up top that says support will lead you to a donation page for the McCray Gaines Learning Center, which supports children and parents in need, based in Selma, Alabama. So that is the story of Joanne Bland so far, and I want to give Kayla an opportunity. Kayla helped me with the research for this episode. She did so much reflecting within these notes already, and I want to hear from her in her own voice what she thinks about Joanne's story and about Black History Month, about what we have to do to continue the fight towards justice. 
So let's hear from her now. Hello, my name is Kayla Stokes, and I am the host and producer of Bias Bender, which is a podcast that explores the lives of Black women from the past and the present in order to imagine the future. There's so much to take away from Joanne Bland's story. The first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that she lived through history that I learned about in school, but hello, she's still in her 60s. (laughs) If that's not a reminder that the civil rights movement wasn't that long ago, I don't know what is. The road towards equality and justice is really just getting started, and we have a long way to go. Joanne also makes me want to just Go ahead and check in to make sure I'm not missing any upcoming elections. She made a lot of sacrifices in the name of the right to vote, so continuing your everyday relationship with democracy is a tangible way to honor her work. And while you're at it, you can also check in on a friend or two and make sure they're voting wherever they get the chance to. This story also encourages me to engage with history in my backyard. I love that Joanne is still telling the stories that she lived through in her hometown of Selma. I wonder what I can learn about the history of civil rights where I'm from. I wonder what history you have in your own neighborhood. Of course, you can give it a Google, but what might you learn from asking someone in your family or a neighbor who has lived in your area for a while what they know? The stories of where we come from are so important because they help us navigate where we still have to go and how we might get there. We have to use all of our resources if we're going to keep learning and evolving. And another aspect of Joanne's story that really sticks with me is that she has always had a strong sense of what she believes in. She believes in voting rights and access to democracy for all. She believes that everyone should be treated equally, and she believes that everyone has a lane in which they can operate in order to achieve positive change. I think her story is a wonderful reminder to take stock of your beliefs. It can be so easy to think, oh yeah, I believe in the good stuff, and that's how I move about the world. But I think we'd all benefit from carving out some time to literally make a list of the things that are most important in our belief systems. What is your priority list of beliefs? And from there, you can ask yourself if the way you move around in the world matches what you believe. When you actually lay it out and think about it, I think it's way easier to adjust if your actions don't really fit your beliefs. We have so much power in our voices and our actions. Well, that is what I believe, at least. I I think Joanne would agree with me based off of what I learned about her this week. I'm left thinking about how I can be an active participant, even when I doubt my own abilities. I've had so much fun getting to tell the stories of two Black women who inspire me on Thick and Thin this month. If you want to keep listening to stories of Black women you might not know about already, you can find me over on my podcast, which is called Bias Bender. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on Instagram at Bias Bender or at Kayla.Stokes, where I post about my podcast and other random stuff. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for having me on this month, Katie. I will take any excuse to talk about Black women who inspire me, but this one was extra fun. So thank you. It's painful hearing stories about people's hurt, especially when it comes to children, like in today's episode, especially when it comes to times in history that we're no longer in, and yet we still are. Recounting and having conversations surrounding these stories, these real events from history, is so important. If we are unaware of what has happened in history, these events could very well repeat themselves. Or worse, broken records prevent progress. Continue to listen to stories about Black women, past, present, and future, over on Kayla's podcast, Bias Bender. I am such a fan of her storytelling style and the subjects that she chooses to cover. She's always diving into different genres and disciplines, bringing other people into the stories. I love her episodes so much, so definitely check them out. I will have all of her things listed in the show notes of this episode, so just scroll down and dive into some of her episodes over on Bias Bender. Also, I want to actually kind of segue and finish off this episode with a little taste of what is to come because a lot is changing and I can't share everything. I know I hate when people say this like, oh, there's stuff changing, things are happening, but I can't tell you any of it. Things are changing in my life, in my platforms, in how I'm operating on social media, and I am so excited to eventually share everything with you. I have a lot of change brewing in the distance. It's kind of like I feel like a season of change right now for a lot of us because, you know, it's been a year since the pandemic began and we're starting to, I guess, kind of feel a bit hopeful, you know, for what's coming. And I don't know, I just feel like this like change in all of us, this kind of um, spirit of hope. And so I'm really excited to share what is changing in my platforms, how I'm changing my voice a bit and also my look and feel. And because you made it to the end of this episode, as a little treat, I'm going to tell you a little taste of one thing that is changing in my life and platforms, and that is the Thick and Thin podcast artwork. So it hasn't changed yet, but pretty soon when I'm done, I'm still working on it, but I actually collaborated with an artist that I found on Instagram. I asked you guys over on Stories probably like a month ago now, if anyone knows an oil or acrylic painter. And so I worked with a girl. I'm going to tell you guys like all about it when it's actually live, like all the details and what went into it and all of that. But essentially, I hired an artist and I worked alongside her to create a super unique podcast graphic based on paint. So it's like very painterly. It was made on a canvas and then photographed. And now it's going to be put into podcast artwork. And I'm going to layer on my different, I'm not even going to say it, but like lettering and things. It's going to be so, I'm freaking out. It's just so great. I love just giving, you know, a breath of fresh air to my platforms every once in a while. And I think Thick and Thin deserved it because I was looking at everyone else's, I mean, of course, like don't compare yourself, but I was looking at other people's amazing podcast artwork and I was like, you know what? I think Thick and Thin needs a little something, needs to be zhuzhed up a little bit. So stay tuned for new artwork. That is the first thing that is changing in my platforms. And from there, ugh, it's going to be just something, okay? A whirlwind of change, uh, not only on my platforms, but also in my life. And so I'll let you guys imagine what that could mean. <laughs> I'm going to be elusive and then eventually I will share what's going on. So definitely stay tuned to future episodes of the pod. Truthfully, I've felt a little bit discouraged with a few of my other platforms recently. Just, 
I feel like I did say earlier, like I feel the sense of hope is brewing and I feel like people are maybe looking at things in a different way and feeling a bit more hopeful about things. But I also do feel a lot of negativity on social media right now, which is why I've taken a bit of a step back from Instagram and from YouTube. And, you know, I think people have, oh, the cat just like jumped onto the table. Hi. Um, she's like, I'm here for moral support. So I've definitely struggled a bit and I think it's been obvious to my followers um, in that way. But the podcast is something that I felt just renewed hope towards because I feel like this audience, you guys listening out there are just my special people. <laughs> like you are so special to me. So I just want to say thank you for sticking with me with this podcast and how it's evolved. It's certainly evolved from something that covered maybe the more, I don't know, superficial elements of my life. And now it's it's evolved into something that covers really important stories. And that's something that I want to do on all of my platforms eventually, but I just feel like it's you know, it's one of those things where if you're shifting everything you do, people tend to get a little bit uncomfortable with the change and I'm learning to be comfortable with that and know that I will lose some people in the process of changing the way I do things. But in doing that, I'm getting closer to my authentic self and what I really want to do and how I want to impact the world because with social media, with this opportunity I have to share, you know, it's it's a privilege. It's a responsibility. I feel like I can't just, you know, use it to be superficial all the time. And that's not something everyone agrees with, and that's totally fine. But for me, I want to make sure that everything I'm putting into the internet, everything I'm putting out there has a purpose. And I want that purpose to be either pushing for change, pushing for bettering us in some way, you know, even if it's uncomfortable. And so I feel like with the podcast, I've really been able to do that over the past few years. And I'm not sure if I've been able to do that on all platforms. So I'm trying. You'll see in the coming months how things will change over on Instagram and on YouTube and beyond. And I know not everyone will, you know, accept it. Not everyone will like it. But um, you know, like I said, you guys are so special to me. So I'm really hoping that you guys will stick with me on this. So yeah, I know I'm being super elusive and like not at all specific. And I'm sorry if you guys are frustrated by that, but I promise I'll be sharing more soon. And just know if I'm a little bit absent on social media, it's because I'm just working to figure out what it is I want to do. I've been feeling a little bit lost in it recently. And I've been, you know, talking with my therapist and trying to figure out just like what will not only make me happy, but other people. And I have this horrible tendency, as many of us do, to try to please other people all the time and try to always think of what other people are going to think. Because as a content creator, it's hard to not think that way and think about the audience and the analytics and all that. But I'm trying to get away from that and focus on the art and focus on the the content and whether or not it will help people or make people feel insecure or any number of things. And of course, I'm always evolving. I'm always learning. The way that I learn is listening to you guys. And so I'm always very appreciative of the feedback, but I'm not going to lie. It does get to me sometimes. So I'm just trying to keep my head up as we all are. The past 12 months has kind of been this crazy content revolution of sorts. And I think all of us can agree with that. You know, the way that content was created you know, I don't even know, two years ago is nothing like it is today. There's so much just oh, more awareness. There's more, I don't know the right word, but like you, you know what I'm saying. There's just a lot of possibilities now and a lot more 
um, you know, people are really questioning the content that they are consuming and like, is this worth consuming? I've unfollowed so many people this past year because I just feel like I'm, I'm better catering content to me and what will make me a better person will make me a X, Y, and Z person, just like a more thoughtful person, a more introspective person, like all these things. I've been catering my my people that I follow and then also my own content to kind of reflect that. So anyway, this has been a long tangent rant at the end of this episode, but uh, just know that things are changing around here and it's going to be great. So one last time, thank you to all of my listeners out there. I really appreciate you. You don't go unnoticed. Your support means everything to me. Every time you share any of my episodes or anything of that nature, every time you even just listen, I know I see you, I appreciate you, and I'm just so grateful that you're here because I promise, I think with every episode, we're all getting better somehow. We're all listening to a new story. We're all taking our minds off of something stressful. We're all trying to to strive to be different in some way, in, in a good way, and so Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you guys all in next week's episode. Bye.